Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to take a look at how much it's going to cost this Thanksgiving. Uh, thinking about buying perhaps a organic turkey. Uh, Jennifer Bartahashis is over here. She's a of Bloomberg Intelligence, U.S. food and drug retail analyst, speaking to us from Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Jennifer, what are you cooking this uh, this uh, holiday? Well, I am cooking turkey, um, but I'm actually only cooking part of a turkey. Uh, we have a small household, so um, <laughs> we're not interested in a lot of leftovers. But it's cheaper this year, right? It is. Um, you know, definitely food, food deflation is taking a toll. Um, and on average, Thanksgiving is about 3.4% less expensive this year than it was last year. Um, and so that, that's good news for consumers. Well, so where is the decline coming from? Because the actual turkey itself is not necessarily cheaper, right? Exactly. Um, but what's, the decline is really coming from all the other typical items that, that you would think of for your holiday dinner. So um, stuffing, uh, green beans, you know, uh, you know, potatoes, things like that. Um, and what's happening is that in a deflationary environment, all of the retailers are trying to get as many sales as possible. Um, and so they're discounting all of those common items. And so there's a little bit of a price war that's happening that's driving those prices lower. What, what uh, product is sort of the uh, focal point for some of these price wars? Um, well, anything, you know, obviously, uh, aside from the turkey, which, which is a little bit more expensive this year, um, you see everything from, you know, the instant stuffing to you know, cans of, uh, you know, cream of mushroom soup, pretty much all the standard basic items that most people buy. Um, almost every retailer has some sort of promotion happening on, on a lot of those core items. But it seems like there's something of a divergence between uh, lower cost grocers and the higher and sort of organic-focused stores, right? I mean, it seems like prices are going up for the more kind of uh, artisanal uh, producers. It's true, especially once you get into more uh, more of the organic type um, uh, of items, the prices are going up a little bit more. Um, and and what's what's happening is that you know, there are more and more stores that are selling organic products these days, um, but the the supply is not necessarily expanding at the same rate as the number of people that are selling those goods. Um, and so that that gives it in, inherently a little bit of extra inflation or, or higher prices as, as people have to pay a little bit more to have the goods in their stores, and then they pass it on to consumers. So when you look at retailers like Whole Foods, um, Fresh Market, Fairway, um, these are all retailers that have lean more heavily in that organic and natural space. And as a result, their Thanksgiving basket was a little bit higher this year than the average supermarkets. Yeah, meaning that it was more expensive, right? So exactly. I think you had some uh, information that the basket at Whole Foods would cost $134.95. Uh, that's for 20 items compared with $128.78 at Fairway, at $97.94 at Trader Joe's, and $96.43 at Fresh uh, Market. Can we talk a little bit about why there is price deflation in some of these grocery uh, products? Well, you know, the, the, the price deflation, you know, 
and this is a pretty small basket, you know, when you're talking about very specific things for Thanksgiving. But the, the price deflation is, is really coming. It's, a, it's an overall industry trend where you're seeing deflation across the board, and it's been a, a sustained period of deflation. Um, and some of that is coming from deflation in produce. Um, some of that is coming from deflation in proteins like beef and eggs and chicken um, and in dairy as well. Um, and so when that happens, it sort of bleeds through and affects all of the, you know, all of the, the retail prices within the industry. Is it just that we're getting that much more efficient at producing food? Is that the idea? Um, it, that, that's, that's part of it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's always a cycle of supply and demand with regards to, you know, what's produced. Um, and so, you know, you go through limited supply, producers then overproduce, um, and then you go through, you know, a period where there's, there's a little too much and prices come down. Um, and that's kind of a normal fluctuation. But we've, we have had kind of a sustained period where um, prices have been coming down or staying low right. um, for, for quite a while. Jennifer Patashas, thank you so much for being with us. Jennifer Patashas, U.S. Food and Drug Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, speaking with us from Princeton, New Jersey. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. My co-host, Pim Fox, is on vacation. This is Bloomberg. want to learn about what fund managers are thinking uh, right now. Uh, a number of money managers that we spoke to uh, since President-elect Trump uh, won the election, they've said that they have not changed the way that they structured their portfolios significantly or their strategies. Uh, but perhaps our next guest disagrees. I want to bring in David Kudla, CEO and Chief Investment Strategist of Mainstay Capital Management, which oversees about $2 billion. Uh, David, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. So uh, have you changed your base case outlook and the way that you invest since the election? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when we look at it, we look at a Trump presidency with a still Republican-controlled Congress. But specifically with the Trump presidency, uh, a sea change in the investment landscape. Um, we've already seen what's happened with bond yields in the last two weeks with the prospect of uh, tax policy and infrastructure spending, pro-growth policies, uh, regulation, uh, regulations being rolled back. And, you know, we see the, that, uh, that there is a, a path here for rates headed higher. The Fed will have cover to raise rates even faster than maybe they would have. Um, and we've seen the markets performing well in specific sectors in this regard that I think investors need to take heed of this. Uh, it's very important for the coming weeks and months in their portfolio. Well, so how do you sort of take what's going on and put it into an investment thesis? I mean, how do you determine when potentially a rally has gone too far or when perhaps people's hopes are getting ahead of the reality? Sure. So so there's some things that um, happened immediately um, that, that could have been expected if one expected that Trump was going to win the election. You know, we saw an immediate bounce in biotech because – Biotech and pharma had been under uh, a, a what we considered a political risk with the threat of uh, uh, pricing regulation, uh, what started really in September of last year with a Hillary Clinton tweet. As soon as Trump won the presidency, 
rather than Hillary Clinton, that political risk was greatly diminished. Biotech popped a lot. Uh, that we see maybe a, you know, as a shorter, immediate bounce. Other things like banks, you know, we had already been favorable towards uh, the regional banks with the prospect of Fed raising rates that improves their net interest margin or basically their profit on lending. Now, the regulatory headwind in front of banks uh, will probably be diminished, and we expect that. And we think there's a long runway for banks and financial services uh, that's now in front of us with the Trump presidency. With the infrastructure spend, we'll see what comes there, and, and we'll see what policy statements or what statements were made during the campaign actually become policy. Because he's walked some back, some like announcing his intent to pull out of TPP, he's, he's gone through with. So uh, I'm looking at a 10-year yield right now in the Treasury uh, at, at about 2.4% up from 1.5% uh, as recently as September. How high do you mm -hmm. think uh, that the 10-year could go? Uh, and will this be a messy unraveling of, of, of the bond market? Well, it, it's it's been a messy unraveling for the last two weeks. Uh, we've seen uh, yields, depending on where we are on the curve, uh, rise as much as 50, 60, 70 basis points. And yields around the world have, have gone quite a bit higher. Uh, so it's already been a, a little bit messy. We think we could get a, a, a pause here at some point, you know, around 2.5% on the 10-year. Uh, but when we look out longer term, and a lot of this will 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 be based on, you know, are Trump's, you know, the actual policies with a Republican Congress to get put through. Do we see the inflationary, the pro-growth, but also inflationary uh, policies that many think will go in that has caused the bond market to start pricing in higher inflation? Um, you know, but it's easy to see that we we now see rates moving higher, and the 132, 133 back in July we saw in the 10-year uh, is a generational low right. for bond yields. Well, so one argument for why people were going into stocks was that, well, there was no alternative, right? Um, because bond yields were so low, basically the dividend yield you'd be paid by owning a broad basket of stocks would be more than treasuries. That's mm -hmm. changing, uh, and it's changing fast. Do you think that this will lead some people to withdraw or at least hold back from allocating money to, to, to stocks? So far, that has not been the case, but this has been one big question uh, among people I speak with. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that will unfold because, you know, we've talked about the great rotation for a number of years, and there have been a lot of false starts where, where uh, rates have eventually start to go higher. We see the rotation from, um, from bonds to stocks for that reason, although stocks have had uh, a lot of uh, stimulus to go higher, namely central bank stimulus. I mean, that's what we talked about up till the election is earnings didn't matter, valuations didn't matter. It was about central bank stimulus around the world pumping stocks higher. And, you know, but the way we think the dynamic between stocks and bonds unfolds initially is investors start to see, and again, it's investors that look at treasuries and high-grade corporates as a safe investment, but statement after statement, they see a negative number in terms of their total return because the price of bonds moves inversely to yields as yields go higher and stay higher, the bond prices are, are lower. And that will cause people to rethink, you know, how are they allocating their investments. And, you know, we have been saying for a while and continue to say this is where liquid alternative investments are an opportunity uh, when bonds 
uh, are going to be, you know, an asset class that potentially offers negative returns here for a while so, in David, terms of total return. So, David, what's your uh, what's your best bet going forward in the next six months? Banks, <laughs> Regional, financial services, regionals, or, or, or bigger, bigger, broader. So we've families. seen we've seen what's happened with the large money center banks. We have. Uh, you know, the problem with the Wells Fargo scandal. So when we, we look at what rising rates will do for uh, financial services in general, uh, it is, uh, it's help with lending. Uh, when we look at the regulatory headwinds that have been in place, that's affected lending a lot too. People look at their, re, you know, regional banks we, we think of as the hometown lender. People look at, at those banks. That's where a lot of their revenue comes from. So therefore, uh, we like the regional banks over larger banks. We like, uh, you know, the, the, the smaller companies that are domestically oriented versus large multinational conglomerates. So, so small regional banks fit right in that fold of a couple of investment themes that we think they have a long runway ahead of them, right. even though they've done so great the past two weeks. Right. David Kudla, CEO and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital Management, talking about how banks is his bet going forward. with the enemy. Donald Trump went to visit the New York Times yesterday, a publication that he has maligned uh, greatly and that they've had a, a pretty contentious relationship. And uh, he had a wide ranging interview with editors and reporters at the New York Times. Uh, ben Brody, Bloomberg politics reporter here in the studio at Bloomberg 1130 to talk a little bit about what the three most important points were that we learned from that interview. Right. Well, as you said, it was uh, certainly wide ranging. Uh, but one of the things that I think uh, a lot of people took away from it was him saying suddenly that he was uh, open to not exiting uh, the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, this is somebody who has labeled climate change, uh, you know, a Chinese hoax designed to make America less competitive. Uh, and suddenly he's saying that, well, he might uh, keep an open mind about this. It was a little unclear what exactly would sway him one way or the other. Uh, but that certainly made headlines. Um, he also uh, backed away a little bit from uh, some of the neo-Nazis have been supporting from him, uh, who have been supporting him, uh, backed away uh, a lot uh, from this campaign promise to prosecute Hillary Clinton uh, for her use of a private email server. And then raising a lot of eyebrows in my world uh, was him saying that the president of the United States simply can't have a conflict of interest. Yeah, this was this was quite exceptional. Uh, the law is totally on my side, meaning the president can't have a conflict of interest. Um there was a great story uh, by Bloomberg reporters Caleb Melby and Stephanie ba Baker about how President-elect Trump would have a hard time divesting his businesses even if he wanted to. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and just how uh, conflicted he may be? Uh, sure. Uh, well, for one thing, you know, he has a broad international empire uh, with a lot of international partners, uh, including in the Philippines, uh, somebody who is uh, an envoy to the U.S. Uh, so the level of the conflicts and the level of the involvement uh, is just so incredibly vast and really unprecedented uh, in the history of the U.S. presidency. But of course, there's also the real estate issue. Uh, a lot of his holdings are uh, relatively illiquid, and it's not clear exactly what fair market value would be 
uh, for him to divest. Uh, again, if he were interested, which he did not seem to be uh, coming across as. Um, <laughs> no, he said it's not a problem. Uh, he there said is it's no not such a thing. It's legally fine. Uh, and uh, in a strange way, he actually is right about the law. Conflict of interest uh, laws generally exempt the president because uh, they have such a wide purview that there would constantly be raising questions. Uh, of course, that doesn't undo his moral or ethical obligation, nor is it going to stop his political enemies from raising questions about it, or for that matter, reporters. I was seeing a story yesterday that George Washington, too, had a lot of property, um, but it, it, it might not have been as, as quite as lucrative. But people are sort of looking uh, for some kind of uh, precedent that far back. There was another report uh, yesterday that the Trump Foundation admitted violating IRS rules by uh, improperly giving money to someone close to the organization. Um, is this an important thing? Is this something that people should pay attention to? Does it matter? Uh, well, I, you know, I'll just sort of use uh, Trump's own logic. You know, he said uh, that the Hillary, uh, the Clinton Foundation, the Bill Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation uh, was worthy of looking into because people could use it, giving to it as a way to get access to uh, the president, to the president. Uh, they had used it as a way to get access to the secretary of state. And that, uh, you know, this basically was uh Issue number one or piece of evidence uh, number one about the ways that the economy is rigged and the way that Washington is rigged. Uh, so I think it is something that uh, people should be uh, looking into. Uh, it's not exactly clear what the nature of that self-dealing was. It would, they just sort of checked a box on the IRS form. Uh, but yeah, we're certainly going to be looking into it. Yeah, it seems pretty unclear at this point what the scope of it is or, or sort of how, how important it is. Um, but it's something to keep an eye on. Another thing uh, making headlines today, uh, <clears throat> President-elect Trump plans to nominate South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to be United Nations ambassador. Is he getting pushback from uh, his Republican colleagues, even though Nikki Haley uh, is a Republican herself? Uh, Nikki Haley uh, is very popular in the party. Uh, Nikki Haley is very popular in her state. Uh, of course, she was a vocal uh, Trump opponent uh, for much of the primaries, never really came around to him. Uh, it's a little bit unclear just how comfortable uh, mainstream Republicans are right now with some of his picks who have been a little bit more outside of the mainstream or they've been a little bit more insiders uh, and loyalists. But we do know uh, that they are broadly very happy uh, with the choice of Nikki Haley. Which one are they least happy about? Uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, Steve Bannon is certainly uh, someone who they who's going to be uh, a senior strategist, chief counselor, uh, is somebody who is uh, drawing sort of a headache for them uh, insofar as it's uh, brought some pressure and some examination uh, from liberal groups who are concerned about his ties to white nationalist movements. Uh, but, uh, you know, picks like Reince Priebus for uh, chief of staff, who's the chairman of the RNC, they're pretty happy about those. So, you know, it's a mixed bag for some of them. And I've heard um, kind of mixed reports about Mitt Romney and how seriously uh, President-elect Trump is, is considering putting him as secretary of state. Is that is still is that still on the table? Do you think? I, I think it's definitely still on the table. I think he's also definitely still considering a lot of people. This is a you know this is a blue ribbon uh, appointment, and he's taking it seriously. And I think he's entertaining a really wide variety of people from it. And he's somebody who uh, kind of goes through a lot of different possibilities for big uh, choices like this and uh, often doesn't sort of commit one way or the other until his gut knows. And so you'll hear leaks from this or that quarter uh, representing what's purported to be his uh, choice at a given moment. But uh, very often once it's made, uh, it looks a little bit different from what people on the inside were telling us. Ben Brody, Bloomberg Politics reporter. You have an interesting job.
talk about the story of uh, construction companies and that have just absolutely surged in the wake of Donald Trump's uh, victory as uh, the next U.S. president. And they seem to be soaring on the expectation that uh, construction will pick up. But is this actually what's going to happen with us? To break it all down is Karen Eubelhart, an industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. First, Karen, let's talk a little bit about deer earnings. They came out. They were better than expected, still down from last year, but better than expected. The stock now up more than 9%. What's going on? Uh, Deer is consistently beat throughout this cycle. This was a big beat. The uh, expectations were 30 cents. They came in almost a dollar. So that's part of it. Um, the second uh, thing is they uh, sort of signaled that they think the bottom is here in ag equipment. Um, and, you know, I think it's just that they've executed well and there's a lot of hype around these stocks right now. So well, any go- any news is good news, it seems like. But it seems like it's not necessarily that they're predicting such an uptick in revenue next year even. And for Frankly, a lot of their gains have come from, or better than expected, uh, performance has come from cost cutting, correct? Yes. yes. They still expect the North American market to be down 5 to 10%. That's the most important market for them. Uh, they expect large equipment to be down in a similar amount. But they were down 25 to 30% in uh, in uh, fiscal 16. So I guess 5 to 10 looks better. Uh, you know, it, it, it is still going to be down in their high margin project product. So it's still going to be about execution next year. But people have a lot of confidence in it because they've done a good job. Did they talk at all about what a Trump administration would mean for uh, their outlook going forward? Do they have any sense of that? Well, the conference call is on right now, but um, I, I, so, you know, I haven't uh, heard the commentary. But I, uh, what's going on is, of course, everything moved with Trump, right? But infrastructure was the big, big uh, excitement around these stocks. And interestingly, for Deer, it's 12% of their sales, construction equipment. So it should not have moved on that. But, um, you know, Caterpillar, some of the others, they all moved in anticipation. What he, what he said he wants to do is a big number a trillion dollars uh, over 10 years. Unlikely, very unlikely. Also probably not going to help next year, maybe help eight, 2018 if we get anything through. But there's other things. Tax rates are, are expected to be lower. Uh, clean air regulations are supposed to be lower. So there's just a lot of hype that it, it's a very favorable environment for business in general and uh, cyclicals even more because of this, the this construction spending. And they're just really running. And yet on Monday, S&P Global uh, downgraded the outlook for Caterpillar which is often thought of as a rival to Deer, uh, saying that the outlook looks less less positive going forward. I mean, is Caterpillar facing a different outlook for some reason than Deer? Uh, Yeah, um, Deer's, uh, Cat's in the uh, mining market, big market for them. It's down, you know, 60%. um, And uh, so that looks like that's going to be bad uh, again next year. Maybe not as bad again, leveling off. Deer's largely ag. Deer's 85% ag. Um, Cat's got mining and construction. They overlap in construction, but the outlook is is different. And Cat's financial situation is more stretched than Deer's, and that's part of why um, you know S&P made the adjustment as well. Um, so they are similar in that they're the two largest cap stocks in the group, but the end markets are really quite different. With respect to Deer, how much more do, can they cut? Uh, they expect to cut another another hundred and fifteen million dollars again. Um, it's going to be probably largely people at this point. Uh, I think you know you can always find something. I think they're they're doing some restructuring in Europe. 
I think they're getting to the end of the cost cutting. At some point, they've got to start getting some top line. And, and you know, maybe they'll get it by the end of next year, but it's certainly not going to happen in the, in the first half. You know, I have so. to wonder, I mean, are they replacing people with machines or just as excess? Uh, no, they're running their they're running their plants at much lower levels. Like they've they've um, shut down their capacity in large equipment is like a third of what it was, for example. So they simply need less people. But that is happening. That you know, the longer term trend is that is happening. Karen Eubelhart, Industrials Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York, talking about uh, Deere's beat, big beat. Its stocks are responding. And Caterpillar's more negative outlook. The big question remains, will the positive expectations of the market be fulfilled with actual infrastructure spending? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.